Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel according to Luke. I now invite you to stand in body or in spirit in honor of the reading of the Gospel. Hear these words from Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Katie and Don. Thank you for all the beautiful, beautiful music today. I'm, I'm so grateful. Uh, Adair and I are also grateful. My best friend, Jonathan Sykes, is here. We've been friends since sixth grade. He's here this weekend. Um, and uh, don't ask him any questions. I've told him not to say anything. Um, but Adair had a, a baby shower with her family, and it was a ladies' baby shower this weekend. And so John said, why don't I come down, uh, and we'll go to Dave & Buster's. And so that's what we did. <laughs> while the ladies were at the shower yesterday. (laughs) But I'm grateful for his many years of friendship and for his presence here today. The story Connor just read has typically been titled The Rich Fool. And you won't find this story in the other Gospels. You'll only find it in Luke, which makes sense, because Luke has a special care for the poor and the needy and kind of a special eagerness to make the rich look foolish. So... I think he does that here pretty well. We find Jesus first in the midst of a large crowd. Luke tells us that a crowd of thousands upon thousands had gathered so that they were crushing each other. That's what it actually says. I'm sure some of you have been in a crowd like that before. I'm reminded of the World Series a couple of years back at the Battery. There were so many people. You couldn't move. (laughs) Felt like you were going to get crushed. In contrast, last weekend at the UGA Vandy game, uh, there was plenty of room in Nashville. Uh, Jesus, though, is in a crowd, and in the midst of his teaching, Jesus is interrupted by a gentleman who raises his hand, who apparently is having some family difficulties. There's drama at home. And so he comes to this crowded field preaching event, and he says, excuse me, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Make him give me my fair share. What a bold interruption. Last weekend, we were in Nashville hanging out with family for a family wedding, and I was watching as uh, my nephew Scott, who's five, and his little brother Mac, who's three, were playing together. And at one point, Mac saw this large rock formation in the neighbor's yard. And so, uh, just like a second child to do this, Mac just runs off and does what he wants. He goes over to the rock formation and starts climbing. And Scott, the older one, comes to me and says, Uncle Andrew, Mac went into the neighbor's yard 
He's not allowed to do that. And I said, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that answer will change in a, in a little bit. But that, I didn't know how to answer him. And that obviously wasn't sufficient for young Scott because then he ran to the foremost authority in Nashville, Tennessee at that moment, his mother, and cried out, Mom, Mac went into the neighbor's yard again. Better do something. <laughs> that to me is the same tone, the same plea from the man that interrupts Jesus. Anybody who's had a sibling or been around children, you know that tone. Teacher, something's wrong. I need you to fix it. My brother won't share. <laughs> he won't do the right thing. Can you make him do it, please? <laughs> Jesus answers exactly how most of us, I think, would answer if asked to step in the middle of a family squabble. Who appointed me as judge or referee between you two? I don't want to get triangulated in that. His response in the message reads like this, Mister, what makes you think it's any of my business to get into your business? I like that response. Because it's counter to what really Jesus is after, I think. Jesus, after all, came into the world because our business is his business. So Jesus sees within this man a deep desire for what he believes he is owed to him, for what his brother has. And so Jesus sees an opportunity to get into his business and our business as human beings. He looks at this huge crowd of thousands and thousands and says, watch out. Guard yourself against all kinds of greed, even the least bit. Guard yourself against desires for things that do not give life. After all, life is not defined by what you have, even if you have a lot. And then Jesus tells a story, begins to illustrate. There was a rich man who had a lot of land. He, had, he was a farmer, and he had a really, really, really good year. His harvest came up double, almost triple what it had in previous years. There was more crop than he could deal with, and he couldn't, he couldn't store it all. He didn't have enough space. He didn't have room for this abundant harvest. So the man said to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store all this grain, to store this harvest. My barns aren't big enough. What should I do? Now pause there for a moment because there are a few issues I want to discuss first. The first is this, and this might, this might be just me, but I've never made a large financial decision without at least consulting somebody. I've never waded into the waters of investment or large expenditures without at least calling a friend or a mentor, a parent, or a sibling. When I bought my car, I stood on it for months. I called everybody I knew. I consulted everybody to discuss, to glean some wisdom. And if I'd elected just to lean on my own understanding, if I'd made that decision in isolation, alone, you would have a senior pastor with a mighty fine car, <laughs> as well as a horrible credit score and a house load of debt, so I, I made that decision in community and in consultation with others because it was a big decision. But who is this rich fool's conversation partner? Himself. He's isolated. He's not in community. He's alone, and he's talking to himself. He's trying to figure out what to do with this sizable investment by himself. And from what we know of him so far, this is likely the way he's used to making most of his decisions. And because of that, because he's not reaching out for advice or wisdom or consultation, there's no one there to question there's no spouse in the picture to say, I, I don't know about that, or what about this? There's no friend to offer some notes or thoughts. There's no mentor to advise on different prospects or possibilities. This man is by himself, and what's more, he has no desire to reach out to anybody regarding his decision. He's making this decision on his own. 
Now we, as a church, this body, you all here gathered today, we don't do that. As a church, we're in community, and we have to figure out how to function that way. None, none of us thinks the same way. Every Sunday, our pews are filled with people of different ages, perspectives, statuses, political persuasions, just to name a few. Every committee in this church is made up of people who come to the table with different experiences and different backgrounds. And because of that, we don't act as a church, we don't act according to what one person wants or desires. It has to happen in conversation. It has to happen together, which to me grants its own kind of richness in life because of that relationship. And I often pray that God will save me from ever being in a group of people who think and perceive the world just like I do. I need the richness of differing perspectives to grow and to learn. I need people. We need each other. But this guy doesn't have anybody. He doesn't have a church or a community. So he simply consults himself. And he says, <clears throat> self, what do you think I should do? What should I do about my abundant harvest? That's a question that really only leads in one direction because of how it's worded. Are you listening? Hear it again. Self, what should I do with my harvest? Chris Hanks, he's the executive director of the Institute of Entrepreneurship in Atlanta. And he says this, nothing changes a person like the right question. And I have to imagine the inverse is true too. Nothing keeps a person in the same spot stuck in the same thing, like the wrong question. The rich fool is asking himself the wrong question. I don't think he even cares. And so what does he do? He builds bigger barns. He hoards his stuff, his money, his harvest, looking forward to days of eating and drinking and being merry, and then he dies. He has nothing to show for his life. He has no relationships. All he has is a bunch of barns, a bunch of grain, and guess what? He can't take that with him. You can't. In the South, there's a different way of saying that. You ain't ever seen a U-Haul buying a hearse, right? <laughs> the 19th century version, some attribute to Ben Franklin, goes like this. Shrouds don't have pockets. And one man put it this way. He who dies with the most toys still dies. The rich fool dies. And Jesus stops the story there. But if, I wonder if there were a sequel, if that story were to keep going, I'm sure we would see a pretty empty wake. I'm sure not a lot of folks would show up for the funeral, except for maybe the contractor, and the eulogy delivered would be pretty short. Mr. Richful had a lot of stuff. He had a great harvest this year. Oh, man, you should have seen it. And he just built these beautiful new barns to hold all of it. It's a shame he'll never be able to enjoy them. I mean, this feels like this feels like Christmas Carol took something from this, you know? This is Scrooge, except this guy didn't have a bunch of ghosts to ask him, is this how you really want to live? This rich fool just had himself in a really bad question. What should I do with my harvest? And I wonder if there's a better question out there that he could have asked. I wonder if there's a question that might have pointed him in a different direction. Perhaps he could have said something like, well, who should I consult about what to do next. Or maybe he could have said, self, is there a way I can deal with this abundant harvest in a way that shows gratitude? Or maybe, how about, is there a simpler way to handle this, simpler than tearing down old barns and building all new ones? Maybe he could have asked himself, self, does my life reflect a simplicity that does not involve gathering and keeping more and more 
but rather involves holding on to less and less. Honestly, that's a more similar question to the to, to the one John Wesley reflected upon when he thought about what to do with money and wealth and stuff. Connor mentioned in his prayer today and, and, and in his sermon last week that John Wesley had rules. He had three rules. He had a method, big surprise, for how to be a Christian with money. And the first rule was to gain, to earn all you can. But he didn't mean it in a rich fool kind of way. He said, gain all you can without hurting your health. Earn all you can without hurting your mind. And earn all you can, gain all you can, without hurting your neighbor. Make sure you don't hurt your neighbor. Work hard while maintaining this Christian ethic of grace and of care. But his next rule is this, save all you can. And he's not talking about keeping all your grain in some fancy new barns. Rather, Wesley's rule of saving all you can was an answer to this question. How can I live as simply as possible in order to save the money I earn to save my resources in order to help and benefit the world? He said in his sermon that you don't need to squander resources on satisfying uh, desires or unnecessary expenditures, expensive clothing or ornaments that just look good or please the eye. Cut that stuff out. Stop spending money to boost your status or find admiration from people. Spending money, spending your resources in these ways only grows those selfish desires. It only increases the temptation for more. So get out of it. Simplify your life. Remove obstacles that would continue down that path. Wesley's whole second rule, save all you can, was focused on simplifying life and expenses. It was focused on the question, how can I live my life more simply so that Jesus might take charge more and more? It's a question about sanctification. How can I become more and more like Jesus? Now that, to me, is a good question. And the answer, simplify. Remove things that get in the way between you and God. Remove the things that entice you to hoard and hold on to things. Don't take steps toward the obstacles that cause you to waste gifts in all ways, in every way in your life, including financial. Move toward a life of simplicity. And why should we do this? Why do we need to simplify our lives? Why should we cut out the unnecessary? Why should we eliminate drama and complexities and obstacles from our lives? Because the God of the universe, the God of chemistry and quantum mechanics and biology and gravity, the way the planets orbit around stars, the God who placed your DNA strand by strand, the God of endless complexity, simplified the hope and desire of the Almighty into a man whose central core was the care and concern for his fellow man, friend or foe, and that's it. Relationship. That's all. That's the simplest message. That's what God is after. That's who God is. Endlessly complex, yes, but so earnestly and beautifully simple. We are called to live lives of simplicity because that is the life God chose to live through Jesus. And that is the life that God invited us into when Jesus said to me and to you, follow me. And of course, we do our best <laughs> a lot of the time to the church included to complicate that calling, I think. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us this, God made man simple. Man's complex problems are of his own devising. We do our best to complexify and complicate 
a life of following Jesus. Pastor Leslie Weatherhead puts it this way. He says, the simple message of Christ has often been overlaid with too much, with lies, with superstitions, with distortions. The message of Galilee is often overlaid with dogma and ceremonies and tradition. And what with denominational squabbles, mutual disapprovals and intolerances, one can hardly catch the message of the Son of Man or be lifted up and strengthened by its beauty and by its power and by its simplicity. Every declaration of that message should bring the listener into communion with the living Christ and into touch with the Spirit. If it did, that listener would find love kindled in his heart, the kind of love that leads you to love every man, woman, and child in the world. The essential to Christianity, past, present, future, is loving Christ and one another. And that's it. It's simple. Wesley said, earn all you can, save all you can, cut out the uh, unnecessary, simplify, because only in simplifying will we come to the realization that we don't need bigger barns, we don't need better things, we don't need more gadgets, we don't need the latest and greatest Now, only in simplification will we come to walk closer and closer with the God who simplified the purpose of the ever-expanding universe into a man whose desire was to get into our business, to find a group of friends, to humbly walk together, to live together, and to share that simple, transforming love for one another with the whole world. And friends, not even death could complicate the simplest message of God's love and God's endless grace for this world. I've got one more thing, and I'll be finished. Last, um, last weekend, we were at the wedding, at a wedding in Nashville for Adair's family, so we missed the beautiful service that took place last Sunday, the religion and the arts service on Sunday afternoon. Was anybody able to attend that last Sunday? I heard it was beautiful. I'm thankful to Dawn for the effort she put into giving so many such a beautiful time of reflection and worship. If you don't know, the, the whole service was all about concentrating our worship based on the art of the windows that you see around you. And the service included music and poetry in reference to these wonderful windows. And the last poem that attendees were invited to read silently was a reflection on that window in the back. If you can't see it, I mean, I invite you to turn around and look at it, but if you can't see it, it is an image of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Based on Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's a very simple invitation. Now, my wife wrote a poem for that window. And it was read last week. And I think it is a far better reflection of the simplicity that we're talking about today. It's called A Sound at the Door. It's so soft, it might have been missed. But the dog starts barking, so I peek through the blinds to check. It's Jesus again, hands on hips, sweat shining on his forehead. And the house is a mess. And the barking dog will most certainly jump on him, but I know he doesn't mind, not really. So I open the door. Hello there, he says. I hope I'm not imposing. Come on in, I say, as the dog whines at his feet. What a spectacle. Sometimes when Jesus visits, there are awkward silences. So 
I asked, anything in particular you wanted to talk about today? No, no, no. Just wanted to sit for a minute with a friend. And if you have it, I wouldn't turn down a glass of cold water. I always forget that about him, how he needs so little and loves the world and me so very much. Just look at the way he falls to his knees right now to calm the frantic dog rubbing her pink belly like there is nowhere else in the world he would rather be. Friends, a mentor of mine once told me that when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he was really just asking for a friend. We do our best to complicate that friendship, that relationship. Oh, but oh, how simple a life of faith could be, should be. Jesus has never really needed that much from us. He simply knocks at the door and he seeks a friend. Oh, by the way, he does it in our, our good times, our best times, and our worst times. And do you remember in the scripture kind of read, the rich fool asked a question that really, I don't know, felt like an imposition. And the first word that came out of Jesus' mouth, friend. Let us pray. God, you have called us to a life of simplicity. You've called us to a friendship, a partnership. And God, sometimes we confess, I confess, oh God, that I overcomplicate it, that I let too many things get in the way, and I miss what it might be that you would show me, oh God. I pray now that you would guide us, oh God, that you would guide us in this friendship and the simplicity of it that we might share with the world with so many who may feel alone and rejected that there is one who would have them to be a friend. In your name we pray. Amen.